I feel like that's something that people initially, when they first start training, they want to learn all the exercises. They want to learn, all right, what's the coolest exercise? What's the best exercise for this, best exercise for that? And then you start to realize if there's a million ways to do one exercise, like you're never really going to find the one thing that you're like actually looking for. Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you are not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. We have two missions. The first mission is to connect athletes with professionals who they can trust, and our second mission is to create a community and foster the education of those professionals and future professionals in the realm of athlete health and performance. This podcast is one way that we fulfill those missions. So, if you're one of our six listeners who enjoy the show, do us a favor and give it a rating on your favorite podcast platform so that we can get this information out to as many people as possible. In fact, pause it right now, do your duty to clinical athlete and go down to the app, click the five star thing, and then come right back, press play, boom, duty fulfilled. To learn more about clinical athlete, head on over to the website, clinicalathlete.com and join the free Kalu community Facebook group where Clinical Athlete and the Level Up Initiative communities have combined to form an amazing group with several different types of learning opportunities. You can join the Kalu Community Facebook group by clicking the link in the show notes. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. We've got another student edition coming at you. Chris Hewen, a physical therapy student and Clinical Athlete Forum intern, helps us lead an interview with physical therapy student and Clinical Athlete Forum member James Chung. We talk about James's journey within his DPT program and what it's like in grad school being in a big city like New York. And we geek out on some motor learning and motor skill acquisition topics, which James is particularly interested in, as am I. It was an awesome conversation. So, if you're a student or interested in that student life, this episode is for you. We hope you enjoy. What up, James? Can you please tell us? Uh, a little bit about your background, where you are currently in school and what year you are. Yeah, what's going on? Um, I am a second year student now. can't believe it's been, it's reached that point already. I feel like it passed in a second, but um, at Columbia University, so I'm here in New York City. Um, and I actually, I would say Zoom University at this point, but hopefully we make the transition back sooner than later. But yeah, so I'm here. Um, and uh, taking a whole bunch of courses, but I'm glad to still be uh, continuing the curriculum and graduating on time. Are you, you were born and raised in New York City, right? Yeah, I grew up here. So it was nice to actually get into a school here so I don't have to leave. I feel like every New Yorker is like gonna find a reason to just stay here longer than they need to. Eventually I'll leave. Yeah, so I knew that you were a trainer prior to starting school and you still are. So can you talk about kind of your background prior to PT school? What interested you to go into PT and then balancing like still coaching people and being in PT school? Yeah, I think um, 
It's funny. I feel like everybody starts this way. Um, you graduate high school and you're like, all right, I got to get buff and start lifting weights. And then you get into some bodybuilding. And then once you get into college, you realize you're peddling a bunch of like bro science to everybody once you start learning that there's more to it than just lifting. But that's where I started um, because I actually ended up playing collegiate tennis when I got in. Um, and that's that's when I kind of was exposed to strength conditioning. And that's where I realized there's a lot more to it than just like you know, heading to the gym and pumping iron. But from a performance perspective, I like, I really enjoy training in the weight room. And that's where I got into Olympic weightlifting. And it's uh, something that led me to kind of help out along in the weight room. And then eventually I'm like, all right, you know what? I think I can maybe make some money on the side while I study. So uh, I ended up going for my personal training certification. And um, yeah, it was, it was great because like, it's something that allowed me to feel like I was like working on uh, something I can expand on in the future. And I knew like PT was something I wanted to try and do once I kind of discovered what it was because I was never exposed to PT in high school. Um, I actually didn't really know what it was until I got into college, until I heard that was like an option or a route. And then I realized um, it's something that I could do. But eventually, like my senior year, I got a job as a trainer at a, a clinic. Um, and I worked there for about a couple of years before I went independent. And then before I applied to PT school, but I know like once I, uh, I initially wanted to be a PE teacher, a physical education teacher. And, uh, I thought that was like going to be my peak. I'm like, all right, I'm going to be a PE teacher. I'm going to be like that cool high school, uh, coach. That's, you know, that's cool to everybody. And I'm going to be doing what I love. And I realized, wait a minute, I feel like I'm selling myself a little short. Not that there's a problem with being a PE teacher. I'm like, I realized P PT was something else that I could do. Um, but that's when I, when I got the job at the clinic, I realized, all right, this is what I want to do. And I just kept training up until I got in. Um, but there was a solid break, like a solid three-year break after I graduated undergrad before I got in. And I've been to New York City a few times, but it, it stresses me out every time I go. My sister lived there. And I, it's like normal for you. And we've talked because it's like, in a sense, you think the city's comfortable. But... I'm fascinated with you and Adrian, who's another clinical athlete member. Uh, she's a second year as well, right? Or she a third? Yeah, year? she's in my class. She's in your class, yeah. But both mm -hmm. y'all just like navigating New York City as students and then doing clinicals there. Could you talk about like what a normal day or a week looks like? Because I know you spend a lot of time sleeping on the subway. Oh yes, you know you you develop this skill where you. Uh, go to sleep and you wake up right at your stop. And uh, I live far enough where I have a nice 45 second uh, bout where I'm taking the A train uptown and I get to, you know, get a, catch a nice nap. Initially, when I first started class, I'm like, this is when I'm going to study. That only lasted so long. <laughs> 45 minutes. 45 minutes or 45 seconds? You said it feels like seconds, but... Uh, minutes. Yes. I actually, okay. so I live in Brooklyn. Um, Columbia University is up on 169th Street, uptown in Manhattan. Um, so the total commute from door to door is about an hour and 20 minutes or so each way. Um, and that was like my high school commute each way. So I know, yeah, you're probably thinking, wow, that's, that's a long trip, but it's actually pretty normal for a typical New York commute, if you ask anybody here. Adrian will probably agree. Um, and yeah, I... I'm not going to lie. It's definitely a struggle when you have an 8 a.m. class and you got to get up pretty early and then you're like trying to study and whatnot. Um, hence why I, I try and catch some Z's while I'm on my way. But yeah, I, I the commute's not too bad. Um, I, I'm one, I'm, there's a couple of commuters on my, on my, in my program, but 
uh, I just got used to it. And it's, I kind of miss it. I'm not going to lie. Once the pandemic hit, I, when I went back on the train, I was really happy. I'm like, ah, I miss this. It's like a very, very, uh, very good alone time to just be with your thoughts. But what if you try to so drive not too bad. in your car, would that be like a three hour commute? It you wouldn't even be. get there. Yeah. Yeah. You, I don't think you'd even get there. It's not a good idea. I know some people they'll commute. I think what there's, I have a classmate who lives upstate. So it's like, if you're like outside of the city, it's a little easier because we actually have parking. But if you're in the city, you probably don't even have a car. It'd be weird if you have a car in the city. So that's kind of how it is out here. Adrian's the same. I'm pretty sure on the same boat too. But it, would biking be faster? Or just mm, if I wanted to bike uptown, <laughs> if I was uh, that energetic, I would do it. But I like to sit down, sleep, and rest. But um, no, I actually thought about biking. I actually have this thing where I, feel, I don't know, I think biking accidents have been increasing here in the city. And I just, knowing drivers here, I, I wouldn't even trust myself or anybody else around me. I, I'd rather just like play it safe. But eventually I'll, I'll try and make that trip at one point in time. There's a nice park next to me. So I try and bike right there, but up to town, uptown in the city, I'm like, yeah, I'll pass. In you just finished one of the clinicals. Was that the same kind of commute length going from Brooklyn to the clinical you were at? Yeah, New York City's weird. Like my clinical was in like 56th Street. And you think it's like, oh my God, it's like a hundred blocks closer, right? But it took me the same amount of time because of like the way the trains are routed. So it actually, about, like about an hour, um, maybe cut back like 20 minutes, but it was just as much of a commute for me because uh, I had to go to Midtown. But luckily it was in the city. Uh, so no complaints there. It ended up being something that was switched over last second. I was trying to find something a little closer to my apartment, but um, it worked out just fine. Mm. But commute wasn't too bad. Yeah, I, living in Texas, you drive everywhere because everything's so far apart. So for me, it's like the five-minute commute to school is way Yeah, it must be nice. It must be nice. <laughs> yeah. See, I, in, in California, everything's really far apart, but I, we have like the terrible traffic also. So it just it doesn't even matter. Yeah, it's and it's like you don't... And you don't have like a tra- like as good of a train system. So I imagine like you kind of have to drive anyway, right? Yeah. 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 But Quinn Michael. doesn't leave his house. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, less so now. Yeah. My uh, my girlfriend's from Vegas, and I grew up here in the city. So when I um, when I would head out to Las Vegas and just re- see like how open the roads were and how like everybody drives, it was such a like it just it was kind of a shock to me, really, because I was like, it must be nice to be able to just drive and just like get somewhere and not have traffic, and um. But like I got my license pretty late. Anyway, I I would I appreciate driving whenever I go out there now. But when I'm here in the city, I definitely avoid it at all costs. Yeah, I can imagine. So since we're I think about the same time period of when we started school and when we're going to graduate, have you from the beginning of school till kind of you're at this halfway point? Has there been a either dramatic change in your philosophy? your thought process and then maybe your just overall thoughts about your schooling so far and maybe interactions with other students yeah um you you graduate 2022 right yep in may yeah, yeah, yeah. cool yeah ditto so um f- funny enough like i guess just a little bit of background on myself too in terms of like when i was applying to school like columbia university was the only program i applied to um 
And I realized when I made the decision to apply to school and I kind of knew where I wanted to go, I kind of made the decision in the sense like, you know, if I don't get in, I'm going to apply next year. I kind of know I want to go here. It's here in the city. I, I did my research and it's a program I definitely want to try and make the big effort to get into. And so um, for what it's worth, like it absolutely worth it. It met, it exceeded every single one of my expectations because the professors here definitely, um, it, it's, I don't know, the experience has been unbelievable, to be honest. Um, and I'm really happy that I'm in it. It's crazy to reflect back kind of like, um, as a trainer, being out, like finishing undergrad and just working and just thinking, will I ever get into PT school, taking all those prereqs and then finally getting in. It was definitely, um, it was definitely exciting to make that happen. It kind of sucked. I got waitlisted. So that was, that was a killer, killer time period for me. Cause I was waiting for that response. But anyway, no, that my experience has been awesome. Um, and I just want to like highlight how, how much like our professors helped us out in terms of getting our clinical placements in the pandemic. And it's, that's, I mean, it was just the effort they put in. It definitely shows like they really care about all their students. And um, I, I, it's been great. And I think um, one of the biggest things for me to transitioning from being a trainer to being a PT student is realizing how much more there is to PT than what I thought. And I feel like every trainer or fitness professional who thinks they know what PT is from what they see from the outside. And I can say this because I was one of those people you know, I mean, like, oh, PTs, it's like clamshells and doing, you know, core stability drills. Uh, and from the outside, you think, you know, not much is happening, but the schooling you have to go through is just something else. And it's something I had to definitely adjust to because uh, I wasn't as big of a, um, I wasn't too studious in undergrad. Let's just put it that way. And we had to adjust, especially in my first semester. Um, but it's working out. I'm still there, you know, nothing. Um, I'm still studying and still uh, kind of pushing through and finishing my first clinical. It's nice to see it all come together and kind of um, have that happen, especially during the pandemic. So, I mean, it's crazy. It, it all worked out. Yeah, for sure. With our first, I think, real conversation, you, I had no clue about this, but you have taken a pretty big shift or interest towards the neuro setting, neuro population. Um, could you explain kind of the differences you saw and what we talked about of maybe the orthopedic structure of some of your classics classes and then the neural uh, neuro classes and how motor learning and those concepts have fit into kind of your evolution? Yeah. Um, it's funny, actually, I, I reflect a lot on actually the first course I took with you, Quinn, uh, you, the first CWC course in here in the city, um, the Hall of Your Life. And one of the things that I remember was um, that you really pushed to was like, you know, the style of coaching and how, you know, how you coach movement isn't as direct as it seems. And there's a lot more to it than that. And, and I just, I remember like that course and among other things kind of, I, it sticks out to me because I remember thinking like this, it, I wish I was taught this way early on when I was like learning how to lift and when I was learning how to, um, how to play sports and whatnot. I realized there was more, more to it than um, just like exercise. I, like it's not just the exercise that you're, we're trying to learn and teach here. And I, I realized when I came across, like when I kind of started digging in a little bit more um, and I came across like dynamical systems theory and I realized like, like, what is this? Right. And I, 
when the course was updated and I went back and saw that you included all that in the curriculum in the weightlifting course, I realized, um, all right, like, yeah, this is definitely something that interests me because it falls in line with the way I think and coach and try and train people. And part of that has to do with like, I, I really want to learn more about how people learn rather than just like teach movement. And I, I feel like, um, that's, something that people initially, when they first start training, they want to learn all the exercises. They want to learn, all right, what's the coolest exercise? What's the best exercise for this, best exercise for that? And then you start to realize, you know, there's, if there's a million ways to do one exercise, like you're never really going to find the one thing that you're like actually looking for, rather just learn how to adjust to the person in front of you. And so what I was really, what I really picked up on um, whenever I go to courses, I, re- I really try and pick up on like how I can be a better coach and better teacher. And, um, Quinn was definitely one of those instructors. So, and then when I think about, um, some of my professors too, uh, in college, uh, initially when I was a education major, there was something about being an education major, um, that intrigued me because I, I knew I wanted to get into like learning and teaching. And, um, I realized that that is what I wanted to apply more to when I was doing the things I like to do when that was like coaching and training people. And then when I got into like motor learning theory, I realized like, all right, this is it. This is, I, I, I realized there's a lot more complexity than people are really giving credit for. And I feel like I need to learn more about it and I need to know like what all the moving parts are. And when I started to learn about this motor learning theory, I realized it was missing. It was like all the questions I had about like, you know, is this actually the way, like, is this actually what's happening? All the questions I had that were running through my head, I realized like having a basic understanding of some of the frameworks that I'm like studying now and still learning more about, it kind of helps me like better understand how to adjust my coaching. And in terms of my evolution towards neuro, like neuro is something that I, I'm starting to see more of these concepts being taught in my curriculum. And I realize uh, it's something I'm interested in because, you know, working with people in the neural population, it's not as straightforward. You, you know, you kind of have to problem solve. And that's what I like, you know, that problem solving aspect of it and realizing that there's a lot more factors involved that you have to take into consideration in order to find instead of the best conditions for somebody to, you know, get back to where they were and get them back to doing the things they love to do. And it's not just as simple as giving an exercise. And so I wanted to dive a lot deeper into that. And I saw that, uh, it's funny, I'm taking pediatrics now. And I think I spoke with you, Quinn, about it uh, um, recently, actually a while back, or maybe over summer, but pediatrics, I realized, I, or I didn't know there was so much neuromotor learning theory involved. And now that we're in the curriculum and like learning about it, it's funny, Chris, when we spoke, I thought it was all neuro and I'm realizing maybe I'm into, I'm into pediatrics. It's actually very, very interesting. Um, I spoke with my professor and she threw in the word affordances in the first lecture. I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> keyword, affordances, environment, constraints. I'm like, I like this, where this is going. So I don't know, may, I might uh, I might be making a shift. Who knows? But that's kind of been the path. Was your, or is your pediatrics professor your neuro professor as well? No. Same. Separate? Yeah, so this is a separate professor. is my first, um, my first pediatrics class. We had, we're in neuro two right now. Um, but yeah, either way, I'm, I'm interested in like, the idea of working with people who won't be like, or patients who you kind of have to like create the environment to help kind of to help them get to where they need to be. Um, and in pediatrics, I realize that's something you kind of have to do because kids are learning and they're exploring all the time. And like, you're, you're not going to tell them to do a certain exercise 
like you know very very prescriptively and do it this like you kind of have to you know enjoy have fun with it and like learn how to approach each each person like very um very differently and so i like i like how you have to really understand how kids learn not just kids but also like just basic motor learning theory and, and having a good framework helps you better understand how are you going to approach teaching or trying to get somebody to move a certain way and it's not as simple as coaching them it's you have to like and I think in in neuro in the neuro setting it's similar. So I think that's what was very interesting to me. And orthopedic, I was working in an outpatient ortho clinic, and I I did a, we the, luckily that clinic um, the coaches and the PTs worked very closely together. Um, and so I I realized I I liked that. I, that's where I first got a taste of like working with complex cases and trying to figure out that it's not as direct as like the way I was coaching before having that experience. And I realized there's something more to it. You know what I mean? It's, if, if the answer was a certain exercise, you know, you know, if only it were that easy. And so that's what kind of led me to where I am. Yeah. To that point, the, you were just on my own personal journal club and you, the paper that we talked about was this, um, do you remember the authors, the name of that paper? Um, one of them is Dr. Silva. She's a physiotherapist, um, and she works out of Cincinnati University. I forget the others, but she talks, she was on Rob Gray's podcast and that's where I first heard about her. Um, but yeah, it, so that, it talks about, yeah. That paper was, first of all, it was thick, but it, it was <laughs> yeah. kind of talking about the evolution of some of these theories and more towards an ecological approach, which is, um, fascinating. And so I sent it to my neuro professor and she like came up to me in class the next day and was like, this is phenomenal. This is like X, Y, Z. And I was thinking, if I sent this to my ortho professor, would he have this much of a, a stoked like experience? And that's not to say that that's like every neuro professor's reaction versus every ortho. But I think it is to your point, there is a little bit more of an open-mindedness and an exploration of getting across like how to teach movement or how to experience things. and. Um, try things out uh, in a neuro setting compared to some of that rigid structure that's taught in ortho classes. Yeah, and listening to, um, I, I keep bringing it up, but Rob Gray's podcast, um, and kind of the more you learn and understand like how, you know, there's there's a, there's many different ways to teach somebody how to move. Um, and the depending on what you're trying to teach, you have to really understand what parts are involved and what things you can actually manipulate to, help somebody, you know, get where they need to go. Um, and it makes me think the way, uh, so far it's been my experience, but for whatever reason, and I don't know, I don't have the full picture obviously because I'm still a student and I'm only limited to my experience working in the clinic as a, as a trainer, but it seems like in, or in orthopedics, it tends to be very, like, very, like, this is the way it's supposed to be. I think because it tends to be a little bit more mechanical, uh, in a sense, and that leaks into the way it, like exercises are taught as well. Um, and I realize something that I also really like is that, or what I want to kind of like do more of is see if I, if I better understand or better know how to apply a better framework of thinking when it comes to how people learn how to move. I wonder how that would influence or change what I'm learning orthopedics and how I would apply those concepts. And I feel like um, the ortho, ortho the orthotherapists that I've really linked with and really uh, appreciate are the ones who have that neural background and thought process and motor learning framework. Cause they're, they're the ones who are first to say like, yeah, you could do this exercise this way, but you know, there's a bunch of other different ways you could do it too. 
And, um, but, you know, it's more of a matter of like how you teach it, whether or not it meets the demand or the capacities of the person in front of you. Whereas like others are very, I, I just come across, I don't know if this is your experience too, but like it tends to be very like, this is how you're supposed to do this exercise. And when you do this exercise, it targets this muscle 100% of the time, you know, like serratus slides. This is 100% all serratus. Um, and I just, when I had my Therex course in, in school, I realized, um, you know, I found myself questioning things a lot more because of that. Cause I realized, is it though? You know what I mean? But at the same time, I'm constantly having this battle in my head. Like, all right, James, just shut up. Just, you know, listen and try and learn and do what you can. Um, but yeah, that's, that's something I'm, I'm realizing that it's that having that framework, framework of motor learning, which you would think like every clinician would really have a solid understanding of. Cause it's, I would think it's one of the primary interventions we use or I'm going to be using, right? Like everybody should have a good sense of that or having a good framework of motor learning. But I realized that's not really the case. And that's why I was very more, I was leaning towards pediatrics and neuro because that's where I realized those therapists tend to have a better understanding of that. But I'm curious how ortho or how, it would how I would approach ortho if I was able to bring this into it. Hey guys, Quinn Hennick here. Here's our brain break from the great conversation with student forum member, James Chung. Just so you don't forget, if you haven't already, go to the link in the show notes, join the Kalu Community Facebook group, read the pinned announcement, introduce yourself, read the resources tab that we've compiled for you with the Kalu mission and some Kalu starter pack materials, including must-listen-to podcasts and must-read papers. And now, back to the show. Sometimes I wonder how much our language gets in our own way. Like in the in the ortho settings, when we can freely communicate, you know, say with an adult, and we can think about or like we can over communicate, and then we try to teach movement through spoken word, where like mere neurons, baby, that's not how that works, you know. You yeah. you learn by doing, and and you learn by exploration, and like you said, with pediatrics, that communication is different. You, can, you don't have that, that spoken word at the same level. And a lot of times with the neuro population as well, you know, depending on the, the case and the presentation, it's communication has to be much different. And you communicate through manipulating the environment. You communicate through demonstration. You communicate through different ways of, ta you know, just different. It's just, and probably more along the lines of how we actually learn how to do stuff. Um, so I think, I think maybe our spoken language can be our blessing and our curse in, in that respect. We, we rely on it a little bit too much in that ortho. Yeah. Thing. And I think uh, those, those populations too, like uh, working with those uh, types of patients also are a constraint on like your ability to use the tools that you have. Like, you know, you have to like, you understand that they're not going to be as receptive to that same language compared to somebody who has maybe a full intact nervous system or is fully grown. And I think, um, you got to get more creative. And so you, you can't be bound by such strict rules of like teach or movement rather than like, well, once you take a bit or you kind of reflect on like the deeper meaning behind why you're doing what you're doing, get going back to what you said, like your environment, like how does this movement relate to what they want to do and be able to function in their life? And I love, that's why I love like kind of that shift in thinking where you, you can't isolate or like assess or treat somebody in isolation from the environment that they're moving in. So if you're going to teach movement, if you want it to be impactful on something that they're trying to get better at, I, I really appreciate like 
being or kind of thinking more of like, all right, how can I best relate it to uh, or help them connect with what they're trying to do uh, and their environment and just, you know, how close can I get to actually assessing them in that environment? And in that sense, also, how can I best relate it to what they want to do? And it, it kind of takes away or it helped me go away from like trying to be very prescriptive and like teaching them what I want them to learn. And instead it helped me better think, all right, I think I need to better understand what you want to do and how can I, how can we have an, like a, an exchange so we can work together to find what works best for you rather than like thinking I'm a trainer, I'm a clinician who knows everything and I'm going to be telling you what to do. And this, if you don't do it this way, then you're not going to learn. And so that's why it really challenged my previous way of coaching. And I feel like everybody starts off this way, but I definitely was on like a more prescriptive, like uh, I have a martial arts background. So I actually brought that into my coaching initially. And it was very like, you have to do it this way, you know, uh, and you have to listen to me. But then I realized I wouldn't want to be taught that way. And then when I started questioning it, I realized, all right, this is probably not the most, uh, the best way or to kind of promote longevity. Um, but so I, I really, that's why I really like kind of this, this different way of thinking and just having a solid framework is just a great way to help you organize yourself along the way. Since you're currently still coaching when working with clients, could you give, and I'm putting you on the spot. Could you give an example of like, let's say a movement that you're trying to teach or have someone learn for maybe the first few times they've ever done it, how you view it now compared to maybe like, either how a professor in your cohort would teach it or maybe like a traditional PT student? Yeah, I think um, it's funny. I experienced this in the clinic too, or when I was doing my clinical. Um, whenever, so I'll, I'll, really, I'll give a really good example. If I'm teaching somebody a squat, like the first thing I say is like, have you ever done a squat before? And if they say yes or no, if they say yes, I say, can you show me what you think a squat looks like? And so I just want to get a sense of, what they think is what's their what in their head what's what's their version of a squat um and then i just observe and i just take a look at it. if they haven't done a squat before i you know i always try and keep it simple say hey can you just basically i show them can you do this motion try to go as low as you can and from there i just kind of observe and whereas before or the way we're taught it's it's very prescriptive like you're going to squat you're going to put your feet here you're going to your knees are going to go this direction and then you're going to go to this depth you're going to try and engage these muscles um and I think the difference being, I have to first understand what their concept of that motion is and I have to also get a better understanding of what they think or how they're interpreting what I'm trying to tell them to do. Um, and so I, especially when I'm meeting somebody for the first time, I want to make sure that I, based on how they react to my instruction, I also get a good sense of how well they're able to mirror me. Um, if I demonstrated once how well they're able to, uh, move their own body, how much I can, I can get a good sense just from that. Um, whereas like initially, you know, you want to overcoach things just like anybody new who just learns a new exercise. I feel like any student or any, anybody who learns something that's like, could be a potential for their patients, you want to overcoach it. And cause it has to be done a certain, like a very strict way. Um, but I, I think the biggest difference, and if you apply, you know, some of that, some of the frameworks like ecological dynamics, kind of this idea or this concept of information where like, you know, where are you directing the tension and to what information are you trying to focus on? And initially when I'm working with somebody first, I just want to see where they are so I can get a better sense of where I should direct them. And that way I'm not trying to throw everything and see what sticks. And I think that's the thing that helped me the most. Um, 
And it just helps me have better conversations with patients and with my clients too. I realize like I stopped talking and it's more of like exploring it together. And that's, an, that's, that's been another big shift that I, that I wish I saw more of in terms of being taught how to do that. Obviously it comes with the experience, but I do think that if something that, if, if this was really emphasized in the curriculum more, um, it re- would really change the language of how you approach teaching movement because it's taught very, very prescriptive. But then we understand, like we have these, these frameworks that are, you know, blowing up in the coaching scene and, and, and now in the performance world. And like, it's funny. It's we, I, I would think like clinicians like have this, like are like experts at this because it's something that we have to do like on a, on a daily basis. Um, and I, once, once you like, I guess once you see it, like the glass shatters and you can't like unsee it, kind of like understanding that there's much more to it and all these components in terms of like the individual task and environmental constraints. Once you, underst- once you understand like the things that are interacting, I feel like how could you ever go back? And I wish it was emphasized more in terms of how to work with people because it helped me be more personable too. And I feel like that's huge. Let's keep using that squat example. When would you, so initially you would ask kind of what their interpretation of a squat is and then you'd have them perform it. And then you maybe show them, could you try to do this and see how they represent in their, like what they're seeing you do and what it looks like. When do you actually give a specific cue or specific like change in a constraint for that example of the squat? I know it probably depends on the task of even just that specific movement, but I think some people are like, well, if you just follow this approach of like, allowing them to explore the environment when are you ever going to give them like constraints to or it's like these lanes to stay within and so how do you decide like "Mm, let's continue to practice and see how this evolves without me saying anything for a few weeks Mm -hmm. or you know and that's probably just depends on the person but do you have any kind of like thoughts in your head with that yeah i think um i well, something that I really try to get a sense of is how much feel they have of like their own body. So a lot of what I try and look out for is like when I first like try and see somebody move, is just get a better sense of like, you know, what do you feel when you do there? What do you, when you do that? Or what do you feel when you make this adjustment? Um, and when I, there's a big difference between somebody's like, I feel these, this group of muscles working this area versus somebody who's like, I don't feel anything. And you make them do like 20 reps, like, eh, I feel, you know, either they don't want to communicate or don't know how to communicate what they're feeling, or maybe they just don't know what they're feeling. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because it helps them get a sense of like how receptive they would be to me trying to coach them to like, maybe, uh, you know, first of all, like give me feedback on what they're experiencing. Um, so I know like not to ask more of those questions, but at the same time, um, whenever I coach somebody or I try to want to teach or I want to teach them to move a certain way, I, I like to ask questions that kind of elicit a movement in response, if that makes sense. It's like, can you do this? And it's a way of like, it's also seeing how they would respond to the prompt or the the the, the cue and whatnot. And so it's it's a way of like, instead of like telling them how to do it, I kind of give them the the challenge and see what they do with that. And then from there, explore maybe reflect on like, what did you feel when you did that? And then and then it becomes more of a conversation. So it really depends, like you said, like um, on where they are and depending on what the goals are. If I'm just trying to teach somebody a movement for the first time. I'm not even thinking about sets or reps or anything like that. I'm really focusing on like, are they aware of where their body is when they're doing this thing? Because that's, I mean, that's part of safety. Like 
and kind of like if they are better understanding of like what's moving, what's what they're what's engaging, they're definitely going to be able to communicate when something doesn't feel right. So I also try and get a sense of that. Um, so I know not to push them and try and, you know, put them in a position they're not really comfortable or familiar with or have no awareness of. Uh, but over time, I think it just, it, based on how like much feedback they give me or how much they are able to progress on their own, or also we're just kind of getting the reps in and, and me just observing and, and just helping them explore that movement or task, then, you know, it, things uh, kind of like build up over time. I try to be very gradual with it, but it's something that initially is very exploratory. And that's what I try and how I start, try and start off. Yeah, I like that a lot because initially you're asking them what a squat means or looks like. And then after a few sets, you may ask like, where do you feel that? Or what are you sensing? So both of those, you're not really asking like, you're not biasing them towards this is what a squat look like, or this is what muscles you should feel. You're keeping it so open-ended, which is really nice. And on one of the forums or in one of the threads on clinical athlete, maybe it was the, when we were discussing the Winkleman book, I said like one of my favorite or most frequent things to ask a patient or a client after a set is like, how'd that feel? Or what do you think of that set? And I think it's very similar in the sense you're not asking them like, was that painful? You're not asking them, did you feel hamstrings? You're really keeping it as open for them to reflect and come up with a completely autonomous answer. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, what, what I really appreciate about having this, again, I keep referring back to it. I'm going to sound like a broken record, but like a motor learning framework, or at least having a sense of like a system for you to, to guide how you're coaching or teaching somebody or how you're picking uh, and choosing like how to um, get somebody to begin moving in a certain direction or a certain way, whatever. I think having that allows you, like it really allows you to, um, be more selective with how you go try and approach like coaching that person. Um, because it really gets you like, once you start exploring and once you start understanding, like how, like how well somebody's in tune with their own body, then you're going to know and gauge how specific you're going to be able to be with your coaching and cueing. And you kind of get a better sense of what level they are. And so you can meet them and kind of find that right or kind of like that happy medium of like complexity in terms of like, um, the task or the exercise itself. Um, whereas maybe they just need to focus more on what they're feeling, maybe using X, like, I really appreciate like having that framework because it helps you realize like when we do exercises, I think people get lost in trying to just teach the exercise for the sake of the exercise. When an exercise just really like, it's a task, it's something that we made up. It's just, it's like a movement with a name, right? But what is that exercise? What is that thing that you're trying to teach? What is that going to teach them? about themselves about that you know their own body um and a lot of or a lot of what dictates like how successful you are in helping somebody better understand what their capacities are i think is where you drive and kind of focus their attention and so when in term in terms of like teaching and exercise i think i always try and have that in the back of my head like what am i tr am i like getting lost and trying to teach you for the sake of just exercise or is this going to help in the bigger picture in terms of you know these are the muscles in your body have you ever felt these before no well, say hello to them because it's probably going to be very, very helpful when something goes wrong and you need to communicate to a clinician in the future, this is where it hurts. And then when I do this motion and I've, um, and I bring that up because I've worked with some clients who have reached out to me like post-injury 
And when I say, you know, what's happening, what's going on, and because they're so in tune with their body, they're like, it hurts when I do this. It feels better when I do that. This is the angle. This is the motion that bothers me the most. Like it, it, the amount of like attunement they have to their own body just makes my life easier as a coach and as a clinician, I feel like in the future. And so I feel like everybody should have that capacity. And so when I try and use movement or exercise to help somebody, you know, improve their quality of life, I think it, a lot of it, or it'll really, it really helps out when I approach it from that perspective. And I, I don't get lost in trying to teach the exercise. I make sure my clients and, you know, my patients really understand how it relates to their body um, in the bigger picture. And I, and it, I'm not trying to be too general and whatnot, but I really try and like help them understand too. Like, don't get too like focused on the exercise because you'll have patients or clients like that too. They're like, am I doing it right? You know, they're relying, am I doing this correctly? Am I doing it? Is my technique okay? I'm like, just, you know, I say it's, it's fine. Just, I'm just observing. I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm just, I just want to see what you do. What do you feel? And then it helps them to kind of like also relax. Like, oh, they're, they realize they're, they don't have to be as reliant on my feedback for, to determine or dictate their success. I think when you approach exercise that way, it just makes it more sustainable, I feel like. You've just got those Zen vibes and you've got the nice mustache to probably. Hey, man, I'm trying. This is my pandemic mustache. It looks great. I try. Uh, So, with motor learning, what, and you've talked about some of the podcasts, but what are some of the resources that have helped you a ton and that you'd recommend either students or people who really want to dive into it? Where, where would you recommend people go to? Um, first and foremost, Rob Gray from Perception and Action Podcast. Um, I would highly, highly recommend checking out his uh, podcast. And he's been coming out with some awesome videos on YouTube as well, um, where he reviews some, some, some uh, recent literature and kind of like dives into how it applies to coaching and how it can be applied. Um, and I also, I'm actually... He has a Patreon too. So if you're interested in working with him, like you can subscribe to work with him on Patreon and have meetings with them. So I've actually been connecting with them so I can at least talk and better understand, you know, kind of think these things out loud and kind of bounce ideas off them in a sense of like how it relates to rehab. Because it's something that um, you kind of learn the theory, but you don't really learn how it's, how to like readily use it to help somebody in front of you. And so I think it's nice to get his perspective um, and as, as a researcher too, he does a really good job of connecting with coaches as well. Um, cause a, a lot of what was happening right now is, uh, coaches are getting more involved in applying some of the theory and research. And I, I really like the, the, the space of motor learning theory right now, because there's a lot of collaboration. It's really cool to see. Um, and I, I really appreciate all the information that he's putting out. I also highly recommend the talent equations, another podcast I've been listening to um, a lot of really good interviews there from like really prominent coaches as well as researchers, just applying that ecological approach to, uh, to helping people learn how to move. And I'm trying to think of it there. Oh, emergence. Emergence is another one. Um, I mean, all three of those are, have really helped me out a ton to better understand it. And I think, uh, they have such cool like collaborations and like getting coaches involved. It, it really helps to get the people who are actually doing the thing, you know, actually coaching and helping to see or get their perspective on like, well, does the research actually translate to helping working with people? And uh, so those are some of the resources I've been really diving into. 
Solid. Is there, should I just type in emergence motor learning? Because if you type in emergence podcast, you get a lot. Uh, I think it's How'd... emergence. Uh, it's Tyler Irby um, and Sean Misha are the oh, two guys. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Cool. Um, it's funny. Sean, Sean Mishka, I think he, uh, he had videos on dynamic systems theory like years ago. And I'm like, when I first heard about dynamic systems theory, I'm like, he was like, he was like the, one of the only ones like who had any information on YouTube. And I'm like, like, and then it's funny, it's kind of coming full circle now that I'm diving deeper into it. I see that, um, kind of some of the work he's doing with Tyler, uh, and Rob as well. They all collaborate as well too. Um, and then I also highly, highly, highly recommend Nonlinear Pedagogy and Skill Acquisition. It's just one of my favorite books. I, I feel I'm going to be re- revisiting that book over and over and over again. Um, but that's been definitely helping me dive a little deeper. Is that the one you sent me? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I got to start that. Um, okay, last question. So I know you, we both still have a year and a half, but and you literally, every time I've talked to you, you've changed what you want to do. And it sounds like <laughs> pediatrics right now. But do you yeah. have any idea going after graduation where what that direction would look like for you? Um, I, I realized that initially, I initially wanted to just be independent and kind of work. And I was, I was pretty successful as a trainer prior to starting school. So I figured if I make the transition as a clinician, I, I could. But I realized like as a clinician, you you know, you really get to work with very specific populations in very like specific locations and settings. And I realized I want to work potentially in a hospital setting or maybe um, you know, in specifically in a neuro or pediatric setting. And so that's some something I want to try and do when I graduate. I mean, in the future, I'm always, I, I I love education, I love teaching, and it's something I want to continue to do. And a lot of what motivates me isn't really to learn information, rather learn how to teach. And so when I try and learn stuff for myself, I try to better understand how can I potentially help somebody else understand this. Um, and so along the way, I try and connect with good educators and teachers along the way um, so that I can do that in the future. So it's something I definitely want to get into. I would love to teach at the university level too. I figured it's something that could potentially help in terms of making an impact in the next generation. Um, but that's, yeah, I eventually, I definitely want to, I want to continue teaching. That's kind of my passion. That's awesome. Okay. So if people do want to reach out, do you want to tell them where they can find you and maybe your super famous IG profile? I don't know about super famous, man. It happened by luck. I, over time, I just started <laughs> posting things and people start following me. I don't know how that happened, uh, but you can find me at Chungy Chung. I don't know. How, I think I was in college my freshman year in the dorms and I was like, oh, what's Instagram? And I just put Chungy Chung as like a joke name and it just stuck and it never went Great. away. So uh, so you can follow me there or you can um, reach out to me at jamesnychung at gmail.com. I guess that's my email, but Instagram works. I'm pretty, I feel like I'm pretty, uh, I get back to people and I loved, I love to connect with everybody that I'm meeting on the forum too. Uh, it's so cool to see everybody kind of engaging and yeah, being part of this community. It's, 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 it's great to see it's growing so much and yeah, I, I appreciate being on here and chatting with you guys. Yeah, man. Thank you for wanting to talk. Yeah. I've always been impressed with your um, just passion for learning and, and uh, you're a deep thinker and, and, 
I've always enjoyed our, our conversations too. And plus I love the motor, le- motor learning side of things as well. So, you know, we've geeked out on that stuff uh, a, a few times now. So uh, keep up the great work, man. It was, it was awesome to have you on. Awesome. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. We'd like to thank James for being on the show. You can check out the show notes for contact information for everybody on today's conversation, myself, Chris, and James. And thank you to our all-star clinical athlete forum intern and student ambassador, Chris Hewen, for leading this student series. And thank you, the clinical athlete community, all six of you, for joining us on this journey of knowledge and improved practice in both the gym and clinic. And one more time, go to the link in the show notes, join the Calu Community Facebook group, read the pin announcement, Introduce yourself to the community, read the resources that we've compiled for you with the Kalu mission and some Kalu starter pack materials, and let's get our brain gains on. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you soon.